The White House and certain agencies are developing new cybersecurity rules for select parts of the critical infrastructure. The Biden administration is using existing laws and authorities to take on digital threats in the absence of congressional action on cyber regulation. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And tell us more about these new rules and which specific sectors are they going after? Yeah, there are three new sectors that will see cyber regulation soon. There's the water sector. The Environmental Protection Agency is going to issue a rule to include cybersecurity as part of the sanitary reviews that EPA already conducts on roughly 1,100 critical water systems around the country. Gives new meaning to the term hygiene, doesn't it? That's right. Cyber hygiene and then all the other hygiene that you need to worry about. In water. There's the communications sector. The Federal Communications Commission will soon issue a public notice to kick off a rulemaking for cybersecurity in emergency and public warning systems. And then there's healthcare. The Department of Health and Human Services is starting work with hospital systems to set some cyber standards in that sector, and they're actually going to then broaden that out to medical devices and other aspects of healthcare. This was all previewed by Ann Newberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies, during a Washington, Washington Post Live event last week, and she described a shift in approach from voluntary collaboration to cybersecurity mandates for critical infrastructure. Over the last decade, we talked a lot in cybersecurity about increasing information sharing. We talked a lot about public-private partnership. But we didn't talk about the reality that, you know, if you're living in an unsecure neighborhood, which fundamentally cyberspace is, and you leave the door wide open and a window propped up, you're not as secure as you need to be. And again, that's Ann Newberger, the Deputy National Security Advisor. Justin, this adds to cyber regulations they've already put in place for the pipeline and rail sectors? That's right. You know, this all kicked off really with the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack last May that, you know, shut down or almost shut down, uh, you know, getting gas on the East Coast for for, uh, many days. And essentially, TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, used its existing authority at that time to issue cyber requirements to the pipeline sector. And then TSA followed that up later in the fall with cyber standards for major passenger and freight rail operators as well. So we've seen the Biden administration you know, act in these areas where they have some authority to set some cyber standards. And as we mentioned before, it's, it's really been a voluntary partnership. As you know, they've been discussing this for decades, really. And just a quick question on that transportation sector. The railroads includes, say, commuter lines in the various cities and subways as well as Amtrak? Yeah, they defined it as high risk. So it's it's these major major passenger rail tracks where, you know, a cyber attack could shut down uh, systems or worse for, you know, tens of thousands of people or even more. Um, you know, last year, the Biden administration actually asked Congress to give them some authority, give the EPA authority to regulate cybersecurity in the water sector as well. After this incident down in Florida where you know, there was an attack that would have essentially raise the levels of some poisonous uh, substances in water, and it was caught at the last second. Um, But Congress hasn't acted on that request. So essentially, you see the Biden administration here using what authorities they have to go out and uh, issue mandates 
And so what are the sectors that the administration needs authority from Congress? What's next on their agenda if they can get Congress to act? Yeah, Ann Neuberger said uh, critical manufacturing and information technology are two critical sectors where they don't have the authorities to set some of these standards that they're setting in other sectors. She says that they are carefully looking at those sectors to figure out what they need in that space and, and how they approach it going forward. Congress did pass a landmark cyber incident reporting bill that would affect all critical infrastructure sectors earlier this year. We should note that um, every critical infrastructure sector, to some extent, will have to comply with these reporting requirements that makes them report cyber incidents to the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. But those rules aren't yet in effect. It will take at least another year for CISA to put, bring those rules together. And this is basically a build-out, then, of the cybersecurity reporting regime that was developed really in the aftermath of 9-11 and the establishment of the Homeland Security Department. Actually, in some some parts of it go back even before that. Yeah, there's been a, a, a sort of small amount of cyber reporting, cyber incident reporting. There's really been no regulation of cyber standards. Are you using multi-factor authentication at your, uh, you know, water plant? Uh, there has been some in sectors like the chemical sector, where CISA has some authorities. But for most of the 16 critical infrastructure sectors, we haven't seen this before. Uh, you know, I've heard some concern that this sort of ad hoc sector by sector approach could be susceptible to more susceptible to industry pushback because there's no you know new mandate from Congress, new law from Congress to kind of underline these uh, concerns. But what you're also seeing is uh, from or hearing from folks is that the threats are just really concerning. Um, and Newberger really says that the Biden administration, while they're putting out these mandates, they're committed to working with industry as well. We're all working to balance, obviously, ensuring that we have confidence in our critical services, ensuring our citizens have confidence in our critical services, and recognizing that these are private sector owned and operated. The private sector must be a key partner in the design, but also has a different set of incentives. Clearly, view cybersecurity often as a cost. And we, from a government perspective, put overall the top priority is avoiding disruption of critical services. So working together gets us to the right balance in that way. And one of the sectors that didn't come up in all of this so far, what about the financial sector? The financial sector actually is is frequently lauded as one of those sectors where cybersecurity is um, in a really mature place. Uh, You hear that from uh, officials from CISA, for instance, a lot. They do. There are certain entities who already are able to regulate um, the cybersecurity of the the financial sector, banking entities and things like that, the SEC. So in in those sectors, there are authorities that exist. And you see the Biden administration looking to plug the gaps, I think, in areas where those authorities just haven't been put in place yet. Because I think in any kind of disaster that could happen as a result of one given critical infrastructure flooding or something, people want to get to the ATM. FEMA wants to distribute funds, et cetera, et cetera. The flow of money is just so important to anything that could happen because of something outside of the financial sector. Absolutely. And I think that's probably why there's been such a focus early on in the financial sector and their regulators in cybersecurity, because it underlines our everyday lives. In the meantime, it's not a bad idea to have a couple of grand under that mattress just in case. Yeah, yeah, not not yet, or at least a couple Bitcoin in the in the wallet. All right. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that. It isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.